Sharon and Sally both talked in the last couple of nights about the factor of wisdom and how important it is in uh, meditation practice. Sharon talked about how loving-kindness practice really changes us by developing understanding through uh, understanding the interconnection that comes from metta practice. Sally talked about how in some Buddhist traditions, uh, wisdom is paired as a complement to mindfulness, understanding that they go together and that the role of mindfulness is really to foster wisdom. And we could say that really wisdom is the most important thing that develops during Dharma practice. Experiences come and go. Concentration comes and goes. Mindfulness comes and goes. But the things that we understand change us. And those changes travel with us for hopefully the rest of our lives. But this is kind of a funny word in the West, the word wisdom. It's not got a generally acknowledged meaning in our culture. So it has a special meaning within the teachings of the Buddha. It's not just about book knowledge, although that can play a role. It's not just about IQ. It's not even about uh, emotional intelligence alone. And it's not just about kind of accumulating life experience. In the lineage of the Buddhist teachings, wisdom means the understanding of life the way it is, which means our inner experience and our outer experience, what their constituent parts are really like, what our human experience is all about. Insight meditation comes from an Indian word, vipassana, which we could understand as seeing things the way they are. So you could say the goal of our insight meditation practice is to see things in our experience the way they truly are. And the understanding is that this is the avenue in our lineage to a true and reliable happiness. So this factor of wisdom is a natural capacity that we all have, but it needs to be kind of woken up. We wake it up through paying attention, and then as it starts to wake up, we develop it and strengthen it through various kinds of examination and investigation. So where should we look to see the way things are? The Buddha suggested looking specifically at three aspects of our experience that he called the three characteristics or marks of existence. And that these three marks apply to all existent things, all phenomena. And the way he described it, he said that all conditioned things are impermanent. I'll come back to this in a moment. All conditioned things are unsatisfactory, and all things are without self. So these are the three marks, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and this aspect of not self. So, but there are a couple of words in here that need some description. What is a conditioned thing? A conditioned thing is something that comes from prior causes and conditions. It's something that is subject to coming into existence, and by virtue of having come into existence, based on underlying conditions, it will also pass out of existence when those conditions change. So all the aspects of 
uh, mind that we've been studying, mind and body that we've been practicing with here, are all conditioned. The sensations of the breath, the sounds that come and go, the sensations in our bodies, the thoughts and emotions that are passing through. These things all have underlying causes. They come, they last for a while, and then they pass away. So these are considered conditioned things, every one of them. All conditioned things are impermanent. It means they're subject to arising and passing. All conditioned things are unsatisfactory. So this word we need to talk about a little too. It doesn't mean that all conditioned things are unpleasant. A lot of conditioned things are very pleasant. You know, we can have pleasant experiences with the breath. We can have pleasant experiences of sounds. We can have blissful sensations in the body. We can have beautiful emotions, love and compassion, happiness. So it doesn't mean that they're unpleasant. But what it means is that none of those things has the ability to give us a lasting sense of happiness. And so none of them is capable of providing a deep sense of satisfaction, which we yearn for. As humans, we have this longing for a deep and reliable sense of being satisfied. And none of these things that arise and pass have the ability to give that to us because of their impermanent nature, which we'll come back to. Then the last statement is a little different. All things are not self. It doesn't say all conditioned things, but it says all things. What the Buddha is pointing to here is that there is one element, or you might say dimension, of our human nature that is a thing in his language, but it's not a conditioned thing. So what is that? It means there's some thing within us that's not subject to arising and passing. There's some thing within us that isn't caused by prior conditions. There's some thing within us that isn't impermanent. So he gave a special name to that. He called it nirvana or nibbana in Pali. And it's a subject of a lot of kind of mystery in uh, Buddhist writings and thinking because it's hard to put your finger on exactly what that thing is. So we're not going to try to define it yet. We'll point to it a little later in the talk. But just be aware that everything is not self. So that means all the conditioned things as well as this kind of mysterious dimension of nirvana uh, is not self. None of these things are self. So by the Buddha's recommendation, we want to explore these three statements through our direct experience and see if we think they're true or not. You know, the, the flavor of his teaching is not to say something and expect us to believe it. The flavor is, here's the way I see it. Check it out and see what you find. So the recommendation is, check these statements out and see what you find in your own personal experience directly. There's this story from the Jewish tradition. You may have heard this from other traditions as well, but I kind of like the Jewish version of it. The story is around King Solomon, who ruled around 900 uh, BC. And King Solomon, it said, had a minister who he felt was getting a little too prideful. He was a chief minister and obviously a very powerful individual, and the king thought he was getting a little too full of himself. So he decided he would take him down a notch. 
And he gave him an assignment that he didn't think the minister would be able to carry out. King said, I hear there's a magic ring somewhere in the world. And this magic ring has the power, if you give it to a happy person, it will make them sad. And if you give it to a sad person, it will make them happy. I want you to find this magic ring because I want it. And I'll give you six months to do it. So the minister kind of felt his reputation was on the line with this assignment. And he asked around all over the kingdom and travelers who'd been through other realms, did they know of such a ring? And everybody said, never heard of such a thing. I don't know that there is one. You'll never find it. He was running out of time. The six-month deadline was coming. There was going to be quite a big banquet where he was going to be asked to present this ring to the king, and he was very afraid of failing. So in desperation, he went to the local marketplace. And he went to this very poor ring seller. Didn't have any fancy jewelry or a big stand. Just a very poor man. And he said, I need to find for the king a ring, a magic ring that will make a happy person sad and a sad person happy. Do you have such a ring? And the ring merchant said, wait just a minute. (laughs) And then he took up a simple gold band And with a tiny stylus, he etched in it three syllables. And then he handed the ring to the minister. The minister went to the banquet. The king said, well, minister, where's my magic ring? You've had six months to find it. And he was sure that the minister wouldn't have found it. So the minister says, yes, your majesty, and here it is. The king took it up and read the three syllables, and the smile dropped from his face. Because those three syllables said, this too will pass. That was the magic saying that would make a happy person sad and a sad person happy. So this is really a teaching on impermanence, isn't it? And a teaching on equanimity. Now the fact is, it won't make a happy meditator sad. Because we've already figured that out. But generally, it would make a happy person sad. So this truth, this too shall pass, it's an interesting reflection that we can bring to every single moment of our experience. And it's always the case. We know this, right? We're not dumb. We've been reading Dharma books for a long time. We know that everything changes. And yet, somehow, we haven't fully grokked the full implication of that truth. And how do we know that? Because life keeps surprising us. You know, here's a simple example. Most of us learned probably in the seventh grade that what we think of as solid matter is actually full of atoms and molecules composed of electrons, protons, and neutrons that are whizzing around through mostly empty space. And we can't even find an electron, actually. It's just kind of a probability smear somewhere in the space of an atom. It's an unfindable particle. But how many of us actually experience the world as mostly empty space? Even though we believe that to be true, don't we mostly experience this world as full of solid things, this physical world? 
Generally we do. So we haven't quite integrated that teaching on impermanence that the scientists tell us is true. Other things surprise us too. I was in the middle of a Dharma talk at uh, Spirit Rock a couple of years ago and we heard this kind of dreadful cry. It was a cry like a, like a baby was crying. And the caretakers went out to investigate and I went out after the talk to see what it was and a deer had died and had probably been killed by uh, some dogs. So the, the deer was there near the meditation hall. A group of us had gathered around it and we said some loving kindness and uh, well wishes for it. It had already died when we got there. And the caretakers then called the Humane Society who offered to come out to the campus and pick the deer up and, and take it away. So they moved it down out of the meditation retreat facility down to the entrance and waited for the Humane Society to come. Unfortunately, the Humane Society never came. So over the next days of the retreat, I would pass by that deer virtually every day. It was by the side of the driveway. And I would watch what was happening to it. And because of all the scavengers on the Spirit Rock land, that deer disappeared rather quickly. We have turkey vultures. We have raccoons, we have mice and rats, we have lots of ants and insects. And within a few days, the bones had been picked clean. There was no flesh left. There was fur and bones. And the rest of that deer was just gone. So how, I mean, how is it that a creature can be so alive a few days earlier and then so completely gone a few days later. It was shocking to me. Why? Because I hadn't really fully taken into account the deer's impermanence while it was alive. It shocked me. It surprised me. By my age, if a lot of you were kind of around my age, we probably all had the experience of having friends die, loved ones, parents, siblings. And it always has come as a shock to me that someone can be so alive one day and then the next day not there. How does that happen? So although we know in our mind this truth of impermanence, we don't always know it in our gut. It, it keeps surprising us. So you could say that a lot of our Dharma practice is about realizing this truth more and more thoroughly so that life doesn't surprise us in that way. It doesn't shock us so much. You know, we know this truth is, is accurate on a cosmic level. Earlier generations didn't know this, but we know that the sun itself wasn't here, what, nine billion years ago, something like that. The earth wasn't here about four and a half billion years ago. And in a few billion more years, the sun will burn out and all life on earth will end because it will be heated by the sun's burning out. So all life on earth will be gone in just, just another few billion years. <laughs> so we know that scale of impermanence is also true. And in some cosmological theories, even space goes away in time. If the expansion that's happened results in another contraction back to a very small core of matter, space may even disappear. So we can see this truth on a a cosmic scale, we can also see it in the scale of our own life. 
And this is kind of interesting to explore because we get a certain message from the culture that the way to happiness is acquiring more, more stuff, you know, more money, bigger house, newer car, better stereo, latest iPhone, computer, whatever. Acquiring more seems to be the way the culture thinks makes for happiness. But we all know that's not the whole story or we would never have come here. We still may wonder why we came here, but at least <laughs> we know that wasn't, uh, that wasn't going to do it. There was an interesting article in the New York Times on a book, um, which some of you may have heard of, by a researcher at Harvard named Daniel Gilbert. I've forgotten the name of his book, but he was researching this question of happiness and unhappiness and what makes for it. What he found is that we're not very good predictors of what will make us happy. So this New York Times article was entitled, The Futile Pursuit of Happiness, the way we usually go about it. So he studied people who got good things that happened to them and who had bad things happen to them. And then he studied their happiness level over time after that uh, event in their life. And he found, for example, that getting a new car, like a new BMW, somebody had really wanted a new BMW, did increase their happiness level for a while, but then it tapered off again, basically back down to the level that it had been at before. So this was consistent across many, many subjects. Whatever the thing was, it produced a, a glow at the beginning, an increase in happiness, but then it fell back down to the standard level before. But then he also looked at events that were painful, like if somebody broke an arm or a leg or lost a job, something like that. And he found that those events did make people unhappy, but the unhappiness didn't last as long as they expected, and they, their resiliency brought them back to the happiness level they were at before also. So the good things didn't last as long in their impact, and the bad things didn't last as long as in their impact as people had thought that they would. So in other words, we couldn't predict accurately what would make us happy and what would make us unhappy. That was a very interesting finding. So the article summarized, on average, bad events proved less intense and more transient than test participants predicted. Good events also proved less intense and briefer as well. So there is a nice um, conclusion from this. This is what the researcher said, uh, Dr. Gilbert. Hope and fear are enduring features of the human experience. But it is unlikely that people are going to abandon them anytime soon just because some psychologist told them they should. <laughs> and this is probably true. And he even said that he was ambivalent about his own conclusions. He said, I don't think I want to give up all these motivations. I don't think I want to learn too much from my own research in that sense. So it's kind of interesting. We don't really want to understand the full implications of impermanence. There's a little bit of a resistance to seeing that truth, that things change in that way. But when we reflect on this study, we realize that what it can really strengthen is our trust in equanimity. Sharon talked about how these changing conditions, the vicissitudes of life, come and go all the time. 
And equanimity is about staying even, staying balanced in the midst of all that. And this conclusion, this study supports that conclusion also. That we can learn to be calmer if the wisdom is there to support that. So we've kind of understood that external events in the material world aren't going to do it finally for us. We come into the spiritual world and we discover as we stay with it new sources of joy and happiness and satisfaction. And I'll just say from my own experience that the the level of satisfaction, the richness of satisfaction that I found from meditation practice has been much greater than the satisfaction that I used to find from things in the world. It's both greater in magnitude and it's also proved more reliable. So we come here and new realms open up to us that have a lot, really a lot to offer. Um, We find joy in loving kindness. We find joy in being able to open the heart to compassion and connection, deep connection with others in a way that's really fulfilling. It shows us what life as a human being can be about and the richness that can be in it. We find through developing this present moment attention of mindfulness that the mind can collect, develop concentration, and come into states of peace that I at least had never known before I meditated. I'd never known this level of peace and the kind of contentment that uh, can come with it. Of course, then what happens is we want to repeat those experiences too, or we want them to last all the time, and they don't either. The heart is sometimes open and deeply connected and joyful, and then it will close. We work over several days in retreat toward an experience of collectedness and feel a great sense of calm and relaxation and ease, and it lasts for a while, and then it changes. And the mind becomes active again, and the body feels restless, and there are a lot of thoughts and emotions. So here, too, we find ourselves going through the ups and downs of change. Pleasant and collected experiences, and difficult and kind of random experiences. If we are wanting things to always be on the pleasant side, then we're not going to uh, find this very fulfilling. We're going to run into friction with that wish. So this experience also teaches teaches us a lot about impermanence, the changing conditions of heart and mind and body. And as we go through these ups and downs again and again and again, we start to realize, oh, maybe it's always going to be like this. And maybe that's okay. Maybe I can find my balance in this changing ocean of conditions. Maybe that's possible. But in between, there are a lot of these ups and downs. And it's funny how we come in to meditation and expect these states to last. It's so interesting. Even though we know cognitively about impermanence, when we hit a state, we think it's going to be there for a while. I remember when I was five years old, I got uh, measles, and I I hated it. You know, I didn't like being sick in the first place, but then I hated the way my face looked 
I just had these red spots all over. And I remember being convinced, because I told my mother this, I know those red spots are never going away. <laughs> I was absolutely convinced I was going to have that on my face the rest of my life. But somehow it, somehow it passed. A few years ago, I went to Burma uh, to go on a meditation retreat, a six-week retreat. I arrived right at the start of the rainy season. There's a three-month rains retreat in all the monasteries in Southeast Asia. Uh, This one started at the start of September. I arrived right at the start of the rains retreat, and the teacher was a concentration master named Pa'ok Sayadaw, agreed to ordain me. I'd been a monk years before in Thailand, 20 years before, and I'd left it kind of a little too early, and I'd always had a longing to be back in the ordained life again. So I was able to go and meditate, and then he offered to let me ordain again as, as a monk, which is something I'd wanted to do for a long time, to re-experience that, um, the beauty of the monastic life. So I arrived one day, late in the day, about 5 p.m., I was shown to my hut, and the next morning I was taken into town, still a layperson, to buy my robes and bowl and other monkly accessories <laughs> and prepare me for the monkhood for the six weeks I was going to be there. And then right after lunch that day, I shaved my head, went through an ordination ceremony, and put on my new robes. So there I was, you know, less than 24 hours having arrived from America. I was a Burmese monk. (laughs) And it was kind of a shock because, you know, it was just a very quick transition. I hadn't been there for a while. I'd I'd kind of forgotten how to tie my robes, to tell you the truth. And I felt a little awkward. But, I, you know, I loved having the opportunity to do that. So we were right at the start of the rainy season. And that's when it started raining. Like almost on cue, the day I got ordained was really sunny, and the next day the rain started for the rainy season. If you know the tropics in the rainy season, it's intense. So it was coming down about three inches a day. I heard some rainfall results after the retreat. It was coming down about three inches a day in this part of Burma, southeast part of Burma. Um, My kuti was a 15-minute walk uphill from the meditation hall, where I had to go about five times a day for the group sittings, the shortest of which was an hour and a half in length, and the longest of which was two hours in length. Then we'd collected a central dining hall to get our meals, and I'd take my meal back to my hut to eat it. So trying to adjust to the monastery life, undergoing this very rigorous schedule that was common at that monastery, And also starting to practice with the concentration practice that Sayadaw taught, which was keep your attention on the space above your upper lip all waking moments of the day. (laughs) This was the only meditation object right here. No other was allowed. This was a concentration practice that I was doing. That was also rigorous. So... The rain was coming down. It came for about two weeks without any break. I didn't see the sun for about two weeks. And I remember one day walking back to my hut after the midday meal was served. I was carrying my bowl in one hand, and the lid was on the top holding a dessert that I was really looking forward to. Uh, 
the bowl was hot because it was freshly steamed rice and stir-fried vegetables. In my other hand was the umbrella because the rain was really coming down. And I was walking up this kind of rocky, muddy path in a pair of plastic flip-flops <laughs> while my robe was falling off my left shoulder. <laughs> and I was trying to squeeze that up while Burmese lay people were bowing to me because they really appreciated that a Westerner would come and try to practice, you know, leave behind the affluent lifestyle and come to practice in Burma. And at that point, I started to think, what am I doing here? (laughs) So it was going like that for at least two weeks, two, two and a half weeks. And I got very discouraged. I mean, I've practiced through a lot of different conditions, but these were the toughest conditions that I'd ever practiced in. And I got very discouraged, and I kept telling myself, you know what's going to change? The rain isn't going to last the whole six weeks. Surely it's going to change. You'll get to tie your robe better. You know, you won't need the umbrella every time you go out, and you'll get used to spending 18 hours a day at your upper lip. But even though I told myself all that stuff, I was really getting discouraged. I mean, it's funny to look back on it now because the conditions were kind of extreme. But at the time, it wasn't that easy. Also, I was just eating one meal a day of a vegetarian diet, basically rice and stir-fried vegetables, very little protein. And over those six weeks, I lost almost half a pound a day, which, you know, I don't have a lot to lose in the first I was losing weight like crazy. So I was getting very discouraged. And I happened to have brought with me a little altarpiece, which was a photograph of the Dalai Lama. I love the Dalai Lama. I find him maybe the most inspiring human being on the planet. So I had this photo of him there. And I thought, I'm going to ask for advice. I'm desperate. I don't usually contact the spirit world or anything like that. Your holiness, I said. I'm really having a difficult time. Can you give me a word of advice? And immediately, and I don't actually think this came out of the spirit world, but immediately his voice appeared in my head. It was very clear, and it had his Indian-accented English. And he said, yes, stay optimistic, cheerful, and confident. (laughs) A positive attitude is the best support. So that actually picked me up. It really picked me up. I thought, stay positive. I can try that. So I tried that. I took that advice, and sometimes I could do it. Even in the midst of this, I'd say, stay optimistic, stay cheerful. And I could put a smile on my face, and I could feel great about being there. Other times, the rain was coming down, and I was in one of those two-hour sits, and I wasn't so optimistic or, or confident. But sometimes I could do it. But when I couldn't, it felt like this is going to last forever. And that was the place from which I had to ask for the advice. I thought I was stuck. I really thought that this gloom and discouragement that I was feeling, I thought that was really going to last. And that's how those states are, aren't they? When they descend like that, it's hard to remember this truth of impermanence. It's hard to remember that things are going to change. And yet, they do. They do. But the good states, sometimes when they come, we have the same expectation. When I first started getting quiet in my retreats, I thought, oh, it's always going to be like this now. 
my life's going to be just like this forevermore. And of course, that didn't stay either. So even though we know about impermanence, sometimes it's hard to really remember it when these conditions happen for us. So another way that you know, we see impermanence in our life, and I see it a lot given where I'm at in, uh, in my age, is in the aging process. Um, I've seen my body go through a lot of changes over, you know, especially the last 10 to, 10 to 15 years. And in fact, this fact of aging is said to be one of the things that inspired Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha-to-be, to set out on his spiritual journey. It said that when he was still a young man of 29, he journeyed outside his palace, visited a local town, saw an old person, a sick person, and a corpse. And seeing those three beings woke him up to the, to the truth of impermanence. So aging, illness, and death are what are called in this tradition the heavenly messengers because they bring down this kind of uh, remembrance for us. Remember where this is headed. And it provides a real um, motivation for our practice and for understanding now while we still have our our health and our uh, well-being. So our bodies do this. You know, we don't ask for it, but our bodies do this. And uh, it started to hit me actually quite a long time ago In my 30s, my hair started to go gray. I still considered myself very young. And Sally and I were at a monastery somewhere. We were listening to a Dharma talk in England. And we'd sat together to listen to the talk, and then I wandered off. And somebody turned to her and said, well, who was that man you were with? And she said, what man? They said, oh, that middle-aged man you were with. (laughs) I thought, wow, I'm only 35, and I'm already middle-aged. You know, it was shocking. And then it gets more shocking. So, you know you're in this phase when you hang out with a bunch of friends at a, at a meal table and the talk turns to what we call the organ recital, <laughs> right? How are the kidneys? How's the liver? Uh, how's, how's the spine? So, a lot of these conversations are, are happening when you get to be my age. And it's not easy to lose our capacities through aging. You know, we lose physical capacity, we lose mental capacity, we lose our looks. I was really struck um, by the honesty a few years ago, I was sitting with this really wonderful American monk who's lived in England, run a monastery there for a long time named Ajahn Sumedho. He's very honest and also funny about his process. And he said, uh, yeah, you know, I, I... I think I look ugly now. He was in his early 70s then. And it's not much fun. Aging is not what the self likes. But he said, it's very interesting from a Dharma point of view. (laughs) And it really is. We learn so much from this process. We understand what life is about. We understand what aging is about. We understand, start to understand what death might be about. So that's one of the other things that becomes clear This is an interesting thing that was drawn out. Uh, The Mahabharata is an ancient Indian epic collection of kind of poems and stories and plays 
from a long, long time ago. And many stories within it, and the Bhagavad Gita is tucked within it as just a little piece. And there's a dialogue within the Mahabharata where someone is asked, what's the greatest miracle in existence? And the answer comes, the greatest miracle is that everyone is surrounded by death, but believes that they themselves won't die. <laughs> it's kind of true, isn't it? It's hard to take in this heavenly messenger. It's hard to take in this truth about our life. And we, we have, I think the psyche has some defenses against recognizing that fact and that truth because it's, it's unsettling when it's called to mind. But it's a very powerful reminder of this truth of impermanence. And again, one of the other heavenly messengers for the Buddha was seeing the corpse that day, seeing a dead person. So it's become part of uh, our lineage that if one has the opportunity, one um, visits and contemplates dead bodies. So Sally and I just had the opportunity to do this a few weeks ago in California. A friend who's also a meditation teacher has a connection with a professor who runs the anatomy lab at a college in Santa Cruz. And he arranged for us and some other friends to, to go down and uh, she opened up the lab to us and let us um, view and touch the dissected bodies that her students had been working with. It was, it was fascinating because we seldom get the opportunity to do this. And um, now you know what meditation teachers like to do in their spare time. <laughs> so there were a few of us down there. It was good mutual support. And we weren't sure you know, how it was going to feel. The bodies were brought out. Um, from the cold room, from the refrigerator where they were stored. And then they were uncovered. They were draped with a cloth. They were uncovered and we could stand next to them. And they had already been dissected, so the instructor just took various layers off. And so we were able to look inside the chest cavity. We were able to um, look inside the skull. And I was able to actually hold half of a skull that still had the brain inside it. It was very heavy. I hadn't expected it to be that heavy. And to hold the liver of this man who had died um, probably a year before they'd had him for a while. It was also very heavy. Surprised how much mass is in the liver. And then, of course, the important reflection is that will be me someday. And that's kind of shocking because, you know, we all like our bodies and we don't like to think that they will become that. But that is the truth of things. And it's considered very healthy, a very healthy reflection in our tradition to, to realize that and to have that contact and to know that that is the outcome of life. So it continues to inspire me to want to practice and to understand. Because there is this kind of inbuilt defense against seeing that reality, the Buddha recommended that we reflect daily on these truths in order to keep it in our mind and to inspire us to understand while we still have health, vitality, intelligence, and energy. So he recommended that every day we reflect 
I'm of the nature to grow old. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to grow sick. I have not gone beyond illness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. Just to remind ourselves, use our time wisely while we still have it. Then, as we come into meditation, a whole other, I would say, um, dimension of impermanence starts to open up to us. In our reflective life outside, we can bring in these reflections on aging, illness, and death. And it starts to shift the way we understand life and the way we value the preciousness of our time. But there's another level of insight that comes out of meditation that I want to talk about a little bit. This message of quantum mechanics that everything is in rapid change in all physical matter has a correlate in meditation experience, but it's not so easy to find. As we attend in a really continuous way, like through a retreat, to the moment-by-moment knowing of breath, body, sounds, emotions, thoughts, smells, taste, touch, etc., we start to look at each of those sense experiences, each of those sense doors really closely, and we can ask, is there any solidity there? Just like quantum mechanics reveals the lack of solidity in physical matter, this meditative exploration, supported by mindfulness and concentration, can let us look at the question of solidity in the experience of our six senses. So, for instance, tuning into sounds. Any solidity in sounds? Or are they all just of the nature of appearing, disappearing, coming, going? None of them last very long. What about thoughts? Solid? Thoughts are so ephemeral. I think Sally was talking about that when she was guiding the other morning. What is a thought? If we look at it closely with mindfulness, it may just go poof, right on the spot. It can just pop. If we don't look at it closely and invest in it, it can run our life. But if we look with mindfulness and steadiness, a thought is just poof, just this little blip. How about emotions? Have you found a solid thing in the emotional world? Has any emotion lasted more than a few hours since you've been here? Usually emotion, I mean, at most, maybe a couple of days. And then even while they're here, have you ever tried getting a hold of one? They're so cloud-like. We can feel them if we slow down, but they're very subtle appearances. Okay. What about the body? We know what the body looks like from the anatomy books, right? They're solid hunks of bone and flesh and tendons and organs. But is that the most reliable guide to the body, the anatomy photographs? Or is a more reliable guide our own awareness? Maybe our own awareness and its intimacy with the body is a more reliable way or place to look. So what does your awareness reveal about the sensations in your body? 
Is a body sensation any body sensation? Is it truly solid? Or if you look closely, is it always kind of changing and pulsing? Kind of getting bigger, getting smaller, turning on and turning off, growing and shrinking, vibrating, changing moment by moment. Look closely if you haven't done this and see if you don't detect that fluidity, even in the sensations that seem most solid in the body. When we look closely with the mind that's concentrated, the body also is just coming, going. Sensations just arising, changing, and dissolving. So when we look closely, every facet of our experience with this still mind of meditation, what we see is things dissolving. The solidity that we normally assume the world has, it doesn't have when we look that closely. So we might you know, be able to tell ourselves everything's impermanent, but when we look this way through meditation, we really know it. We know it firsthand, even closer than the book on quantum mechanics. We know how fluid everything is in our human experience. And then it starts to be clear, we can't hold on. And the reason we can't hold on is there's no solid thing there to take a hold of. And we get this in our marrow, that we really can't find a solid thing to latch on to. The Buddha said that it's like, you know, this level of impermanence is like someone being swept down a river. There's a strong current that's carrying them downstream. They don't want to be carried downstream. So they keep reaching for things on the bank to take a hold of, to stop their flow. But everywhere they reach, they just clasp a bunch of grass and it just pulls out in their hand and they keep being swept down the stream. This is our situation if we're looking to hold on to the things of the senses. None of them are solid enough to be able to support us. This is from Rumi. Think of how phenomena come trooping out of the desert of non-existence into this materiality. Morning and night they arrive in a long line and take over from each other. It's my turn now. Get out. This place of phenomena is a wide exchange of highways with everything going all sorts of different ways. We seem to be sitting still, but we're actually moving. And the fantasies of phenomena are sliding through us like ideas through curtains. So seeing in this meditative way generally brings about one of two responses. In the first place, it's very liberating. You start to see that all the patterns and emotions and thoughts that we were struggling with that seemed so dense and impenetrable are just all poofs and that nothing is binding the mind. And that's wonderfully freeing and uplifting and delightful and true. And then we stay a little longer with that understanding and that seeing. And then we start to wonder, what's next? 
If none of those things are solid or can be held onto, where do I rest? And then it gets scary. But that's not the end of the journey. There's more to come. So, impermanence is revealed through our meditation practice, and it kind of opens the door to these other two characteristics. Conditioned things are unsatisfactory because they're not solid. We can't hang on to them because they're not really lasting long enough to be clung to when we understand them. So what happens when we take a hold, when we try to hold on? Well, either we take a hold of something painful, like a difficult emotion or psychological pattern, and then there's pain right away. We're holding on to pain, so that's painful. Or if we hold on to something pleasant, like a beautiful state of uh, meditation, of concentration, we, if we hold on to that and cling, then we suffer when it goes. So either way, it's unsatisfactory, and there's some suffering for us. There's some unhappiness if we're clinging. This is from Suzuki Roshi. Without accepting the fact that everything changes, we cannot find perfect composure. But unfortunately, although it is true, it is difficult for us to accept it. Because we cannot accept the truth of transiency, we suffer. So the cause of suffering is our non-acceptance of this truth. The teaching of suffering and the teaching that everything changes are two sides of one coin. So these two characteristics are very closely related. The third, not-self, requires a little more investigation. I'm just going to touch on it briefly. When you think about the idea of the I or the self that's kind of at the center of our world, our world revolves around ourself, you start to realize there's an assumption of continuity that's intrinsic in the idea. If there wasn't, we wouldn't worry about dying, right? If you thought it was somebody else who was going to die, no problem. (laughs) But it's because we think it's I who am going to die that there's a problem. So that shows there's an assumption of a continuity from who we are today to who we are up to the moment of death. It's this continuity that is questionable. That there, let me put it more precisely, the assumption that there's any lasting entity in this mind-body process that will continue from now through every moment up until our moment of death is not accurate, according to the Buddha's teaching. So we look at this changing flow of experience at all the six sense doors, and we start to realize nothing stays constant from one moment to the next, let alone one year to the next or one decade to the next. So there's nothing fixed in here that is that can be that solid eye that's going to persist. So that's why the impermanence also reveals this teaching on no lasting self in the middle of all this. So how do we come into alignment with this? I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Bedazzled with Brendan Fraser. It's one of my favorites. He is um, in a pact with the devil, and it's based on the Faust myth. And he gets to request the perfect life for like seven different lifetimes. But every time he expresses the wish, he misses some vital element that makes it really miserable. 
So anyway, he makes this wish for this one life, and he's a kind of debonair intellectual, I think, in New York City. And he's a well-known author and kind of a bon vivant. And people are really attracted to him. And he's a philosopher with the meaning of life. And in this one conversation, he says, why does the existential dilemma have to be so damn bleak? Yes, we're alone in the universe. Yes, life is meaningless and death is inevitable. But is that necessarily so depressing? <laughs> I, I love that line. And in a way, it's very dharmic. Because if you look at people who have been contemplating the truth of this for a long time, there's generally a lot of lightness and joy in them. So there's this, um, there is this fact that it sounds like this teaching on impermanence at first is some bitter pill that we just have to swallow and kind of stoically accept and resign ourselves to. But that's not the point. The point is that this wisdom, this understanding, is a way to free the heart and mind. That's why the Buddha taught it. This is the doorway to our freedom. Why? Because we learn not to hold on to what can't be held on to. We learn not to cling. And that non-clinging is freedom. It is freedom, and it's a doorway to greater freedom, both. Ajahn Chah put it this way. If you let go a little, there's a little peace. If you let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. If you let go completely, there's complete peace. This is the pointer. There's this beautiful chant um, in Pali that is chanted in um, Buddhist countries in Southeast Asia that starts, you probably heard this line, Anicca Vata Sankara. It means all conditioned things are impermanent. And the chant goes on, it's very brief. It goes on to say, all conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. This is where the happiness of the path points. Understanding the nature of conditioned things, not clinging, is what frees the heart and mind to be here, to be present, to be light, to be open. It's a state of non-clinging that's the doorway. This is from the Buddha. When one establishes the perception of impermanence in all formations without exception, the mind inclines to complete peace. So we need to carry on this work of perceiving impermanence again and again and again in all situations. It's not just one insight, but we need to see it over and over and over in every situation that comes our way. Then this quality of peace starts to be more evident. And I want to explore a little bit with you this quality of peace and whether it's a conditioned thing or not. Or whether this quality of peace might be that link to the thing that's not conditioned, that dimension of the unconditioned. And I'll start with silence. I think there are two ways to understand silence. One way is that it's when there aren't any sounds. Right? This is a pretty quiet meditation hall. Sometimes there might not be any sounds, and then you say, wow, it's really silent in here. But there's another way that silence can be understood, 
as the context or the background from which all sounds come and go. Does that make sense? If you understand silence in this way as the container of sounds, is that silence broken when a sound appears? Or is that context still there? That context is still there, isn't it? Can you tune into it sometimes, even when a sound is present? Can you feel the extent of that silence? If you practice, you can. Okay. Now let's look at peace and activity. There's a way in which peace can be understood as the lack of activity. All activity has stopped. But there's another way that peace can be understood as the context within which activity happens. If we understand peace in this way, things can arise, sense experiences can arise, sensations, thoughts, even emotions. And if we learn, we can still tune into that peace that's the underlying context for all those arisings. That peace isn't being broken by the arising, just like the silence isn't really shattered by a sound. So that peace isn't dependent on conditions. Doesn't matter if there's activity at the sense doors or not, that peace is still available and we can tune into it at any moment once we learn to. That is the un, that is a analog, it's a taste of, a pretaste of, it's very close to that unconditioned element that the Buddha was pointing to, that really, truly complete peace. In our meditation, we can start to feel this. Things keep happening. Things are arising and passing, but we're not holding on. In that not holding on, we can feel that kind of deeper peace. And this is a quality of meditation that one teacher called unentangled knowing. We're fully aware Things are happening. We're not cutting off any sense experience. But we're still and unmoved on some fundamental level because we're not getting entangled in holding on to the comings and goings. This place is free from suffering. It's free from unsatisfactoriness. There's nothing to complain about in that place of the unentangled knowing. And this is the place we find refuge and safety. It can be found in any moment when we can tune to it. It's available in any moment. And we learn more and more how to find it, how to recognize it, how to rest there, how to come back to it. And that is our safety. I'll just close with this quotation from the Buddha. Oh, and just to mention, that peace is not dependent on conditions. It's there regardless of the activity that is happening. Here's the quote. One who is dependent has wavering. 
One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire. There being no desire, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here, nor a there, nor an in-between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So let's just sit together for a minute, please. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.